Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would be turning your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, we continue to make our way through uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, We also want to invite any children that may be with us this morning that want to participate in our children's class. Our volunteers are uh, there at the back to greet you and to instruct you in God's Word in that context uh, this morning. Um, Also, I just do want to say uh, Happy Father's Day. Um, We as a church don't set aside Sundays to to do particular special sermons on Mother's Day or Father's Day. We continue going through whatever book we happen to be in. But I do want to say Happy happy Father's Day. And as I take some time uh, to pray before the sermon here in a few moments, I do want to take time just to have a pastoral prayer for this day and for all the emotions involved in a day like Father's Day, but also to pray for uh, the fathers of our church, that God would use them in their homes, uh, to lead in their homes, uh, to disciple uh, their families in the truth of God's Word. So I'll do that in a moment. But as we do, uh, every time we come to God's Word together, we take time to read the passage, and then we'll pause and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Of course, one of the challenges of preaching through Old Testament text is it's a lot of Scripture to read, but we're never bashful of reading God's Word together. So I actually want to read all of Ruth chapter 2 for us this morning. I think it's important that we get the full context of this chapter as we dive into God's Word together this morning. So it's reading a story, and so we can read this story together and be engaged and see how God is at work in the lives of Ruth and Naomi here in Ruth chapter 2. So let me read Ruth chapter 2 for us this morning. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, 
Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out, from, uh, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with who I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. And allow me to take time to pray for the fathers of our church body. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for who you are. Father, we're thankful that you have redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ through his righteous life, through his all-sufficient death, and through his glorious and powerful resurrection. Father, I'm just meditating over the words to that song that we just sang, that all of our lives you have been so, so good to us. Father, that is something only the redeemed can say. Only we can look back on our lives and see that even in the darkest points, you were being good to us. You're being kind to us. And we see that in the book of Ruth, how even at the lowest points, even in the midst of tragedy and heartache and desperation, we know because of the truth of your word and the promises that you have made to us that you are at work for our good. And so, Father, I just want to take a moment to pray on this Father's Day. I, I know that there are just so many different ways uh, that people interact with this day. Uh, some had really terrible relationships with their fathers. They had uh, just ungodly fathers, fathers who were not present in their lives, fathers who left their family and abandoned them. Others have uh, lost their father, and it's a day of sorrow and heartache, but yet thankfulness for the time that they did have uh, with their father. There are men among us who would desire to be fathers, uh, but you have not yet uh, given that to them, and so there is grief even in that. So Father, I just pray for your hand of comfort to be on everyone this morning, to be on those for whom Father's Day is a, is a difficult day. I pray that you would give them hope in the glory of their redemption and the fact that they have you as their all-sufficient, kind, faithful Father who will never forsake them. And Father, we do know and we do want to acknowledge that you have given fathers a, a particular role to fulfill in the economy of your church and of walking faithfully with you. Father, you have called on fathers to be the, the, the primary spiritual leaders of their home, to be the disciples of their home to their wives and to their children. And so Father, I just want to pray for the fathers of Christ Fellowship Leesville right now. Father, I pray that you would convict them uh, if there's any uh, uh, just, Father, laziness within them that's causing them to not be uh, fulfilling the role that you have called them to, to be faithful disciple makers in their home. And Father, we, if we're all being honest, we can confess that we all, all of us as fathers struggle with that from time to time. And so I just pray that you would give us uh, the energy and boldness and courage to, to lead our families well in the truth of your word. 
Father, to make the word be present in our homes, that our children may grow up in the context of hearing the truth of the gospel, that even in our discipline, we would point our children to the realities of the grace that has been shown to us through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I just pray that you would use the fathers of this church for the glory of your name and for the good of our church as we raise up uh, children in the fear of the Lord. Father, right now, I, I just I ask for your help as we come before the truth of your word. Father, we say it every week, and so I say it again. We pray that you would be at work in us by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, that you would lead us into all truth this morning. I pray that you would use the book of Ruth to remind us that even if we can't see it, you are at work for our good and for your glory. And so, Father, I pray that you would use the truth of your word this morning to increase our confidence in who you are and in your faithfulness to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we work our way through the book of Ruth, it's, it's important that we take time to review the story. It is a story. It's a divinely inspired story, but a story nonetheless. And so we need to be sure that we know what's happening, right? It's like when you watch a show on Netflix, often there's a, a recap of what came before, right? They remind you of the highlights of the previous show that you're probably binging it and just watched it five minutes ago. But nonetheless, right, it's, it's there for you if you need it, and you can watch the recap and be reminded of it, right? So that's, that's what we need to do. We need to remind ourselves of what's happened in chapter one, what has gotten us to this point in chapter two, and you can't hit the skip recap button this morning, right? We need to all listen and hear what it is that's happened in Ruth chapter 1. So, so last week we saw, we were introduced to a man named Elimelech and his family. Uh, uh, Naomi is Elimelech's wife. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they were living in Bethlehem in the time of the judges. But a famine had come to the land of Israel, and in particular to Bethlehem. And so Elimelech, along with his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they fled the famine to, a for, to the foreign land of Moab, a place they should not have gone. It was going to a place that God would not have wanted them to flee to, but nevertheless, they went uh, to Moab. Not long after they arrived, tragedy struck their family, and Elimelech died, leaving Naomi as a widow and leaving it just her and her two sons, Malon and Kilion, though uh, it seems to be early on in their time there in Moab, Malon and Kilion took wives, uh, Moabite wives, women from the land of Moab named Orpah and Ruth. They were there, uh, Naomi with her sons, Malon and Kilion, with now her two daughters-in-law from the land of Moab. They were there in Moab for about 10 years, but at the end of that 10-year period, tragedy struck their family once again, and Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, uh, also died, leaving it just Naomi with her two new uh, daughters-in-law who were Moabite women. But outside of the uh, daughters-in-law who were Moabites and who were already in Moab, the family Naomi left Bethlehem and went to Moab with is gone. Elimelech, her husband, is dead. Her two sons are dead. And she's left there with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. But around that time, after Malon and Kilion died, it seems that God visited his people, we're told there in chapter 1, that, that he brought food back to Bethlehem, and word came to Moab, and there was talk about it. And so Naomi found out, hey, God has visited his people. He has restored food to Bethlehem. And so she gathers her daughters-in-law, and they are ready to head back to Bethlehem to go back home because the Lord had visited his people but not long into their journey, Naomi realizes that there's really, in her view, there's no need for Orpah and Ruth to go with her. Why would they go? In her view, all hope is lost. There is nothing that she can do for them. Right? In this tradition, if, uh, if a family was left without a male heir to take on the family name, then it was typically the job of the brother, another brother, to step up and to marry the widow to carry on the family name. But of course, there were no other brothers. Naomi had no other children. And so she tells Orpah and Ruth, look, there is no hope for me for you. 
Even if I were pregnant right now, it wouldn't be enough. Even if I took a husband this night and became pregnant, are you going to wait around for the brother of Malon and Kilion to get older for you to marry? There's, there's no reason for you to return to Bethlehem with me. You need just to go back to your mother's house and find rest in a Moabite husband's home. Marry someone here. Don't return with me. Naomi had given up all hope. She simply could not see how God could possibly be at work in this situation. In fact, she uses language like saying that God is against her. And so Orpah and Ruth hear out Naomi's pleas. Uh, Orpah eventually responds, and she does leave. She returns to her Moabite home. We don't know what happens to her after that. We just know that she goes back. But Ruth, Ruth instead, we see in chapter 1, verse 14, Ruth clings to Naomi. And one of the most beautiful statements of faithfulness and loyal love in the scriptures we find in Ruth's words to Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, verses uh, 16 and 17, if you want to look back there with me. But Ruth, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go... I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Ruth is saying to her, I'm going to be a part of your people. Your God is going to be my God, and it's going to be that way until the day I die. I am committed to being a part of your people, for your God to be my God. Ruth is turning her back on the Moabite false gods and idols, and she is running after the God of Israel. This is a, a, a faithful woman loving her mother-in-law well. But we see there at the end of chapter 1, Naomi still can't see it. She, they eventually, she and Ruth get back to Bethlehem, and all Naomi does is continued to speak of the tragedy that came to her family over and over again. She says how God was against her. Don't even call me Naomi, right? Don't even call me Naomi. That word means pleasant. No, call me Mara because life is bitter. And she has this faithful daughter-in-law who is absolutely committed to her and she can't even see the gift of God standing beside her. But the narrator, the divine perspective on the story sees it all. And so at the end of chapter 1, in verse 22, we have the voice of the narrator speaking truth into the situation. And the narrator, the author of Ruth, does not say that Naomi returned empty. What does verse 22 say of chapter 1? Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. She was not empty she had been given Ruth, this faithful daughter-in-law, and not only that, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There is hope. God is providing. He has provided in Ruth. He has provided by bringing an end to the famine. He has provided by bringing them safely home. They made it. They made it back to Bethlehem, and here they are, and God is ready to pour out his blessings on them, but Naomi cannot yet see it. But you see, this is, this is the glorious reality of reading the Old Testament. We're allowed to see behind the scenes. We're allowed to see what the characters in the story can't see. And God uses that to remind us and to show us this is how he operates in the world. Even when you and I are going through life and we can't see how God is at work and it seems to be darkness and hopelessness and despair, he has made promises to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ and he is at work for his glory, and this is how he does it. This is the kind of way that God works. He uses ordinary events to bring about extraordinary things. This is what we're going to see throughout the book of Ruth. So as we walk through chapter, uh, through chapter 2, I want us to see these three truths. Number one, God's unknown providence. God's unknown providence. Second, God's abundant provision. His abundant provision. And then third, let's see God's eternal perspective again. God's eternal perspective. So let's start by looking at God's unknown providence. Let's look mainly there again at verses 1 through 7. This first sentence of chapter 2 here in verse 1 is really important. Right? So look there with me again at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's 
a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, this is the first time Boaz is mentioned in the story. The author gives us a lot of details about who Boaz is. We're told that he's a relative of her husband's, of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. He is related to him. He's a worthy man. He's an upstanding, righteous individual. He is a man of God. And he is, as it already said, he is from the clan of Elimelech. This is important. He was related to Elimelech, and he is a worthy man of God. Now, it's important, though, to remember, because the story can get confusing if we don't remember that we're being told this. Ruth and Naomi do not understand this. They don't know about this, right? We know about this. We're being told this about Boaz, that there's this guy around, and Naomi seems to have some remembrance of him, but she surely, at the beginning of chapter 2, doesn't remember anything about him. He has, he's not in her mind, and of course, Ruth has no clue who he is. This statement here in verse 1 is for our benefit. From seemingly out of nowhere, the author is starting this chapter by telling us about this guy named Boaz. And that means we should take the hint and realize that Boaz is going to have a significant role to play in this story. Right? It's like just about every uh, romantic comedy you watch, right? Especially those predictable Hallmark movies. Don't pretend like you don't watch them. You know that you have. And you know exactly what's going to happen, right? The guy shows up, and that guy, when he shows up, you know that that's the guy by the end of the movie that's going to end up with the main female character. There's going to be twists and turns they have to go through. She's going to see him having coffee with his sister and think that that's somebody he's dating. And they're going to be all frustrated. But by the end of the story, everybody knows, right, in the first 15 minutes, it's going to be that guy, right? The director of the movie wants you to know it's that guy. Well, look, this is exactly what the author of Ruth is doing. He's, he's like, he's showing his hand. He's saying to you, here's the guy. This is him. It's Boaz. He's a, he's a relative of Elimelech. He's a worthy man. He's an upstanding individual. So keep your eye out for Boaz as you read the story. That's what the author is doing for us. He's saying, God is at work. There is a man who is going to provide for Naomi. He's going to provide for Ruth. And Boaz is the man. There is no suspense in this story. Just like the Hallmark movies, we just have to get through the twist and the turns to get to the end when Boaz and Ruth end up being together. But here we're being told he's the guy. And God is clearly at work in and through each of the things that happen to bring Ruth and Boaz together. And we see it immediately in verse 2, right? Look there at verse 2. Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now remember, if you, if you read this wrong, you can think that Ruth is, knows that she's talking about Boaz. She doesn't have a clue about Boaz. She's not talking about Boaz. She's just saying, I'm going to walk out to the fields, right? I'm going to leave the city of Bethlehem. I'm going to go out to the fields, and I'm going to glean, and I hope I find a field to glean in, uh, and a man who owns a field who will show me favor, right? It's a statement of faithful hopefulness coming from Ruth. And by the way, we need to understand what's happening here with the gleaning and why Ruth would be able to go out and do this to begin with, right? Why is it you can just walk through somebody's field and take their food, right? So what is it that's going on here? Well, the Old Testament law provided for people who were in need. And it instructed people who had fields that they not glean their fields to the edges, that they intentionally leave parts of the field unharvested so that others could come behind who were poor or in need or destitute and gather up what was left over. That was Old Testament law. That was allowed. And Ruth knows this. Naomi knows this. And so she sends Ruth to glean in the field. She's sent to pick up the leftovers that are left laying on the ground. And so she goes just hoping she's going to find favor because apparently as we read the story, 
This could be a really dangerous thing for a young woman, right? Multiple times as we read through chapter 2, you notice that uh, Boaz had to say to her, look, I've commanded the young man not to touch you, not to rebuke you. At the end of of chapter 1, um, uh, verse 22, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. It was a dangerous, apparently, unfortunately, proposition for a young woman to go out on her own to glean the edges of the field. But yet Ruth is willing to go, trusting God that she'll find favor from a man who will care for her, allow her to harvest and to glean so that she can provide for her mother-in-law who she has now devoted her life to. So Ruth heads out and look at what verse 3 says. She set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, there's a strong wink coming from the author of Ruth here, right? She just, she just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. We don't really know how it happened. She just happenstance, right? Coincidence ended up in the field of Boaz. Of course, the author of Ruth is not saying there is luck or coincidence. He is saying to us, sarcastically almost, she just happened to land in the field of Boaz, meaning she was divinely, sovereignly guided by her loving father, that God guided her steps out of all the fields she could have ended up in. She ends up in the field of the God that's mentioned in verse 1, right? She ends up in the field of Boaz. And not, not only that, not only does she end up in the field of Boaz, she ends up in the field of Boaz at the right time, on the right day, so that when she is there, Boaz is coming to check on his fields. She, didn't, she wasn't in the right field on the wrong day, she wasn't in the wrong field on the right day. She's in the right field on the right day when Boaz arrives and sees her. And Ruth doesn't have a clue what God is doing. That's what I mean when I say God's unknown providence. Right? The timing of everything is perfect. They're back in Bethlehem at the time of barley harvest. She goes out hoping to find a field where she's going to find favor. She happens upon the field of Boaz. She happens to be there at the time Boaz is coming to check on his reapers and his servants, right? It is God's divinely orchestrated plan to get Ruth and Boaz together. And she didn't know, Naomi didn't know that God was at work doing this. It was just normal ordinary, everyday things, going to a field to get what she could from the edges of the harvest to provide for her and her mother-in-law. You see, one of the great gifts, I mentioned this already, but one of the great gifts reality of how God is at work. It allows us to see that this is not just an ordinary story, even though it would appear ordinary on the surface of it. No, God is behind it, divinely orchestrating these events. He's divinely bringing people together, right? And we would never understand that if we didn't have this divine perspective that the author of Ruth provides us. We know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. So we can look back and we have these comments from the author of Ruth, from the divinely inspired author, telling us exactly what God is up to. And what this does for us as we read Old Testament narrative and stories, it reminds us that this is how God works in your life too. It's through the normal, ordinary, everyday things. But ultimately, what we're told in a story like this is there are no normal, ordinary, everyday things in God's economy. There is no coincidence. There is no luck. Right? If Romans 8.28 is true, and I believe with every fiber of my being that it is, and Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? He works all things together for good. All things is all-inclusive. Everything in your life he is using for the glory of his name and for the good of your eternal soul. And if that is true, then what that means is one day, one day we're going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And we're going to have the privilege, by God's grace, of looking back on our life. And we're going to see some of the most inconsequential, mundane things we think happened in our life. And we're going to see how God was using it to orchestrate our lives and to keep us firmly in his grip and to deliver us safely into eternity. Look, I'm telling you, he does it every single day and you don't even know it and I don't even know it. And one day we're just going to sit back and rejoice and be like, I had no idea, God, in that ordinary moment that you were orchestrating things the way that you were. Praise be to your name. And we're going to spend eternity. That's why eternity is going to be full of praise forevermore. Number one, because he's worthy of it. But number two, there's going to be an unending amount of things to praise God for from your life. And you're going to see it in the lives of other people. You're going to see how God divinely orchestrated our lives and kept us firm in his grip. You see, as through these ordinary events, not only is God working to provide for Naomi and Ruth, he is also working to bring about our redemption. Because as eventually Ruth and Boaz come together, they have a child. Boaz becomes the great-grandfather of King David, who, of course, it is in the line of King David that the Savior comes. This is God keeping his promises to his people that one day the seed of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, that he would do that through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this story is God keeping his promise that he would crush the head of Satan through the promised seed, and he continues to keep and sustain the promised seed until it would come in the person of Jesus Christ where sin and death was defeated on the cross. So it's even in the mundane, ordinary things that God is bringing about redemption. I mean, listen, friends, it's even the story of this church. I mean, this, this church here, a few, uh, last month, we celebrated our one-year anniversary of this merger of God bringing together Refuge Church and Leesville Baptist Church to create this church, Christ Fellowship Leesville. And it's through seemingly mundane, ordinary things that he brought that to pass. Because we as Refuge Church at the time were praying for God's provision. And, and, and the, I went back and found the email. July of 2020, we had had an elders meeting. We had been praying for God's provision for our church. And we said, look, we, we should probably just maybe email some local people, email the local uh, Raleigh Baptist Association and just say, hey, if there's a church at some point that's struggling or his membership is declining and they might be interested in merging with us, will you, will you just keep us in mind? And so I sent that email off in July of 2020. I got zero response. And I'm not being critical of them. I'm just saying I didn't get a response. <laughs> One month, two months, six months, 12 months. Well, it was worth a shot, right? And then out of nowhere, summer of 2021, our uh, church Facebook account gets a Facebook message from representatives of Liesel Baptist to say, Hey, we're a church whose membership has declined. We're down to, you know, 15 average or so on a Sunday. Would you all be interested in talking about merging? And we're like, well, let's, let's talk, right? Let's meet. Let's have that conversation. But I'm thinking, why us? Why did they reach out to us? It was a mystery. We knew no one in the church. No one in Leesville Baptist Church knew anyone in Refuge Church. But you know what the connection ended up being? That email that was sent 12 months before that God planted in the mind of Roger Nix at that office. And 12 months later, he said, when Liesl Baptist asked him, you should talk to refuge. Mundane, ordinary things where we think God's not doing anything. I didn't think he was doing anything with that email. And we're here this morning because he was doing something we didn't know he was doing. God is at work, and we will not always see it, but we can rest in knowing that he is. There's an unknown providence, and God is at work behind the scenes in normal, everyday things. Look, not to belabor this point, but I'm even thinking about soccer camp this week. We're just going to be teaching some kids about soccer. I mean, yes, we're going to have a devotion every night, but will you pray with me? 
that God will use a mundane, ordinary night of soccer to save people, to secure them for all eternity, to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ. God would be pleased for that to happen. Let's, let's plead with him for that to happen in this coming week. God works through mundane, ordinary things in unknown ways that we may not see or know, but we can trust that he's at work anyway. So we see here in chapter 2 God's unknown providence. But the second thing I want to be sure we see is God's abundant provision. God's abundant provision. Now this is going to take up the chunk here, the middle of this chapter from, from verse 8 all the way pretty much to verse 18. We're going to see how God just overflows in his provision for Ruth and Naomi. You see that there in verses 8 and 9. Of course, Boaz uh, finds out that from his, uh, uh, the leader of his reapers that, that who, who this woman is, that it's the woman who returned from Moab. And, and there in verse 8, Boaz addresses Ruth for the first time. And he says, listen, my daughter, do not go, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one. Keep, keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. I, I've charged the young men not to touch you. I'm going to protect you. And not only can you reap in my fields under my protection, I'm even going to provide water from you that my young men, my servants draw water. I want you to be sustained as long as you can. I don't want you to leave this field because you're thirsty. You can even drink their water. I want you to get what you need from my field. And, and Ruth recognizes the overwhelming generosity of this man, right? The law said, just leave some stuff scattered on the ground so that people can come pick it up. And Boaz says, I'm not just doing that. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide sustenance for you so you can keep working. And so verse 10, it says, she bows to the ground. She recognizes this abundant grace. And she says in verse 10, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? It didn't make sense to Ruth why this man that she doesn't know should be so kind to her. So why is it that he's being so kind to her? Now listen to verses 11 and 12. These are, the, the, this is the, the meat, this is the center part of chapter 2, what Boaz says to her here. Verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So just pause there. Ruth's loyal devotion to her mother-in-law was so extraordinary that the story had already been spread among the people of Bethlehem. People were already whispering about it. What she had done, how she had left everything that she was familiar with, everything that she knew and went. She, she, she left her home of her mother and father. She left behind what she was familiar with. She went to a land she didn't know so that the people of her mother-in-law would be her people, so that the God of her mother-in-law would be her God. And Boaz heard about it. And his desire there is in verse 12. He calls the Lord's blessings on her life. He says in verse 12, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, he knows that Ruth had no ulterior motive. She had not come to the land to get rich or to become well-known. She had simply come to take refuge under the wings of God. And she was committed to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she was willing to turn her back on her family to leave them behind because she knew that in Bethlehem she would be protected under the wings of her loving God as she became part of his people. Now, there are two main themes I want us to notice here as we look at the Lord's abundant provision for Naomi. I want us to see what he provides for Naomi, and then I want us to be sure we see how he provides it. So, so what does God provide for Ruth and Naomi? Well, verses 14 to 16, Boaz is not only now allowing her 
to be protected and to provide water for her. He says, hey, Ruth, come sit down with me. Let's have dinner together with the rest of my servants and with my reapers. And so he sits and lets her eat, verse 14, until she is satisfied. He more than provides for her. She has food left over after she is not able to eat anymore. And then verse 15, Boaz says to his servants, look, don't don't just let her pick up what's left over. I want you to, in fact, uh, provide more than that. I want you to intentionally let her go to the sheaves. I don't want her picking up stuff on the ground. When you gather the sheaves and bind them up and leave them there to gather later, she can come and take stuff out of the sheaves. Not only that, I want you to intentionally even set some things aside for her to pick up. I want you to abundantly provide for Ruth. And so they do that. And it says in verse 17 that she gleans in the field until evening and she, she beats out what she gleans. And that means she's taking this, the, the, the stalks essentially and beating them on the ground. So just the grain falls to the ground. And by the time she's done doing uh, that, beating out the, the, the barley and the wheat, she's left with, or sorry, the barley, she's left with an ephah of barley. Now, that means not a whole lot to us, right? We don't know what that unit of measurement is, but your Bible might have a footnote there. Mine does. It says an ephah is about 22 liters. So that gives us a visual, right? So picture fine grain, right? She's beat it out now. So it's just fine grain that she has. And she takes, right? So picture, this is 22 liters. So picture 11 two-liter Coke bottles, full of grain. That's more than enough for quite a few days for two people. And not only that, right, if you take the weight of that, that's about 30 pounds worth of grain. 30 pounds worth of grain that she has out in the field and has to take back to Bethlehem. Now, maybe Ruth had been training with weights, but probably not, right? She was hungry, had been a part of a, a famine, and had traveled long back to Bethlehem, and she's carrying 30 pounds of grain back to her mother-in-law, right? God has abundantly provided. And when she arrives, she not only provides 30 pounds of barley, it also says in verse 18, that she carried with her what she had left over from her meal with Boaz, right? The doggy bag she took home, right? The leftovers. She brought it back to provide for Naomi. 30 pounds of grain, leftover food, all for her mother-in-law, right? God has poured out his material blessing in this situation on Ruth and on Naomi. There was no lack of food any longer. In fact, it now it was the opposite. It's almost an embarrassing abundance of food for two women. And so what I simply want us to notice here is that God is generous to his people. Now, we're not preaching the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. I'm not saying to you that if you're faithful, God is going to give you all the material blessings, all the material wealth you could ever want. That is not what I'm saying. The Bible does not affirm that. The Bible does not teach that. But nevertheless, what this narrative is intended to teach us is something about the character of God, that he provides abundantly for his people, that he is able to provide for his people even when all hope seems to be lost. And so that may not mean material blessing, but what it does mean is in view of eternity, God is providing abundantly for us, right? We see that in, for example, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is work within us, right? He is able to do abundantly more than all we could ask or think. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that he is able? Because we read stories like Ruth. And we know that he's able, that he's sovereign, that he's at work even when we don't see it. We know that he's able or we read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He is abundant, overwhelming with his grace toward you. You have an inheritance waiting for you in the new heavens and the new earth that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is perfect, and it is unfading. It will forever be glorious. God is an abundantly generous God, and we deserve none of it. Right? The Bible says we deserve hell and eternal condemnation. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that stands in our place, because he views us through the righteous life of Jesus, we have become, through faith in Christ, co-heirs with Christ. And he pours out blessing on us over and over and over again. So what we are to learn from this part of the story is how God is able to provide for his people. I mean, this is even why I think part of the reason when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then when he feeds the 4,000, right, when he's taking a few fish and a few loaves to feed 5,000 men and their families, does Jesus give them just enough? No, they have to gather the what? The leftovers, when he feeds the 4,000, does he give them just enough, right? Just enough to get, okay, you're satisfied, no more. No, what does he do? There's more, right? There's leftovers. I think that is to teach us, just like this is to teach us, that God can abundantly provide, as Ephesians 3 says, more than we could ever ask or think. And it may not be materially. There's no promise that it will be, but it will be eternally and your eternal inheritance in the presence of Jesus Christ. So, so that's, that's what God provided for Ruth and Naomi, but I want to be sure we see how he provided this, this abundant provision. How did he do it? So look back with me at verse 12, and I want us to notice what Boaz says to Ruth. He says, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Now, Boaz could have said that and then he could have done nothing. Right? The Lord repay you, right? Ruth, I see your faithfulness. God is going to repay you. God's going to take care of you. God's going to protect you. You've come here under the protection of his wing. I pray blessings on you, Ruth. Be on your way. But isn't it striking how exactly what Boaz asked God to do, Boaz is the one who does it? <laughs> the Lord repay you. So what does Boaz do? He does just about everything he can to pile food onto Naomi, right? Sit down uh, onto Ruth. Sit down and eat with me. Be satisfied. Take the leftovers home. Servants, leave grain out. Pull it out. Let Ruth pull whatever she needs from the sheaves. Like an overwhelming, abundant 30 pounds of barley you get to take home, Ruth. And she came to take protection under the wings of God. And yet what we find is Boaz is her protector, I've told my men not to lay a hand on you. You stay close to my women and they're going to help protect you as well. You're under my protection, Ruth. You see, I think it's important that we see that God can sovereignly work his providence in our lives and in the lives of others, but he is often pleased to do it through people like you and me. Right? So we can quote a passage like Numbers and say, The Lord bless you and keep you, and the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And what I think this story says to us and the actions of Boaz says to us is that we shouldn't just say it, we should do it. The Lord bless you and keep you, but I want to be a part of being used by God to keep you and to bless you. May his face shine upon you. Well, let me be a part of God shining his face on you and being at work in your life. May I have the privilege of being a representative of God in your life and providing for you and blessing you and fellowshipping with you. You see, this is the economy of God. He brings about his providence through people. Boaz didn't say what he said and sit back and do nothing. Boaz said what he said. He believed what he said. And then he took action to be the very thing he was asking God to do. 
So God provides abundantly, and he does so through a man like Boaz. And often in our lives, the way God provides will be through people. Which is one of the reasons why we say it all the time in this church, we need the local church. We need each other. God wants to provide for you through your relationships in this body of believers. So we see this unknown providence. We see God's abundant provision. And then just finally, I want us to look at the very end of chapter 2 and be sure that we see God's eternal perspective on these events. At the beginning of chapter 2, Naomi simply sends Ruth out and Ruth goes, they just want to find some food. That's the goal. That's the end game for Ruth. But what she ends up going to find is her redeemer. You see that there in verse 20? When Naomi finds out that Boaz is the man in whose field Ruth has been gleaning, she says, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. This is a technical Hebrew word behind the word redeemer, meaning it is the closest male relative who can take action on your behalf to deliver you from all kinds of situations and hardships that you may face. And one of the ways in which that redeemer, that closest male relative can be at work is if, uh, if someone is widowed and has no children to carry on the family name, he is the one who can step in and marry the widow and carry on the family name, which we have said was of utmost importance in the nation of Israel. And here is this man in whose field Ruth just happened upon, and he is the redeemer of that family. But of course, it points to a redeemer even beyond him. Because Boaz is the redeemer for Naomi's family to carry on the family name of Elimelech. But what we know is that this clan that comes from Bethlehem is part of the tribe of Judah. From whom King David would come. From whom King Jesus would come. And so this is God's eternal perspective. They're going out to get some food. God is bringing our Savior into the world. This is how... God works. While he's providing food, he's also preparing a savior. Look, God is always doing a thousand things we don't realize. Sometimes he peels back and we get a glimpse of how he's been at work. But most of the time, we just won't know. And that's why we have the truth of God's word. Because as we read through the story of God's faithfulness, we're reminded that God is working on our behalf. That even when people go out to find food just to make it through the day, he's bringing a redeemer into the world. That's the good news of the scriptures. That's the good news of the gospel. He is for us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your goodness and kindness to us. Father, you have been so, so so good to us throughout our lives. And I pray that stories like this of how you work in dark and mysterious times, Father, would just remind us that though we may not see or know every moment that you're at work, you have an eternal perspective and you are at work for our good and for the glory of your name. And so, Father, even when we, even when we don't understand, I pray that you would fix our eyes on our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.